everybody. Yes, it is the time for Apollos Watered with me, your host, Travis Michael Fleming, where we saturate your faith with the things of God. Today on our show, we are going to continue our discussion into the kingdom of God. Yes, the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Why is the kingdom of God important to our lives? And we have discussed that it is breaking through into our world. Now, I know if you're like me, you go online and you see all of the various social media posts of our friends and family. We go to the news and we see spin doctors going back and forth and we are just apt to throw our hands in the air and say, what is going on? Who is in charge? How can you possibly say that God is breaking through into the world? How can you say that his kingdom is breaking through in the hearts and minds of men and women? Well, I can say that because of a few different things. Number one, the word of God declares it. And number two, that when we really probe deep, we go past all of the rhetoric of social media, we see that it is really indeed happening. I love how C.S. Lewis describes it in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, one of my favorite books of all time. If you have not picked that up and read that to your children or your grandchildren, I would heavily, heavily, heavily encourage it. But in the book, C.S. Lewis captures something utterly unique, and that's the brokenness of our world and how it really feels like the kingdom of God is not breaking through. And he uses that as a description of uh, always being winter and never Christmas. That's how the kids describe it. It's always winter, but never Christmas, meaning that it it seems that we're in this perpetual drudgery of death where there is no celebration at the end of all things. And he, he really is trying to show the brokenness of our world and showing the hand that or, or the, the influence that this white witch, who is the Satan figure in the book, is, is really successful in keeping everyone blind to who the real king, Aslan, is. He's the Christ figure. And what's really fascinating to me is that when the, the Pevensey children arrive in Narnia, that they were prophesied to bring freedom from the white witch's tyranny. And her tyranny had kept it perpetually in winter, but never allowed it to be Christmas. Now, Lewis does this fascinating thing here, or this fabulous job showing the wonderful reality of this when finally Father Christmas shows up. Because what happens, if you're familiar with the story, um, you know what goes on here. If you're not, you'll see that the the snow starts to melt. It's all snowy in this, this land that they find themselves in, and it's everything is frozen, and yet things start to slowly melt. And for the longest time, the White Witch kept Father Christmas away, but then they hear these, these bells, and it's Father Christmas showing up. And all of the children thought, um, as they see uh, him bringing presents, the oldest Pevensey child, Susan, says, I thought there was no Christmas in Narnia. And then Father Christmas responds, says, no, for a long time, the hope that you have brought your majesties is starting to weaken the witch's powers. In other words, the kingdom of Aslan was breaking through into the world of men through them and their presence. And others were starting to notice. You know, the same is really true for us. When Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And in Luke 17, 21, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He was saying this, the beginning of the end of winter is coming in me. And as followers of Jesus, as confessing Christians, God's kingdom breaks through in our lives through our faith. As Paul wrote in Romans 1, 17, 
For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, we talked about this last week when we saw that God's kingdom was inaugurated in Christ, and his second coming will consummate that which he started. So God's kingdom is breaking into the world, and it brings an end to spiritual winter. But what does God's kingdom breaking into our world look like in us? That's the question, isn't it? I mean, we have this tendency to think really big or really theological, and we, want it, we need it really practical. We need it brought into our everyday lives. What does it mean that God's kingdom is breaking through us? Now, in this passage that I have for us today, I want to look at how God's kingdom breaks into our lives. And we're actually in Mark chapter 4, verse 1, all the way through 29. And it's a pretty amazing passage here. We see it in Mark 4, 1 through 29. And I'm reading from the ESV, English Standard Version. And he says, Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that you would may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown in the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. 
But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now, we have to recognize the amazing nature of what we are learning about. I kid you not. We, when we're talking about the kingdom of God, it's so neglected. We need to really understand it because when we do, it changes our perception of the world and how we live. And, and the reality is it is too far beyond us when we really try to concretely think about it. So Jesus has to conceptualize it for us, which is why he speaks in parables. We think in illustrations. We think in figures. We think of stories to inspire ourselves or to limit ourselves. God's kingdom breaking through into our lives involves really understanding the role of parables in Jesus's ministry. When we look at verse 1, he says, we read, and again, he began to teach beside the sea and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat it on the sea and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching the, the many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, now, what is a parable? Let's kick that off. What is it? Now, the simple way to describe it is as earthly stories with heavenly meanings. Simply put, earthly stories with heavenly meanings. Jesus teaches through stories, don't we? All the time we teach through stories. We all use stories to illustrate points. I don't care what your culture is, there are all stories throughout them. I see this really in the African Study Bible. I had an opportunity uh, to get one from Tyndale and read through it before it went public, and it's filled with stories and illustrations because Africans, probably more than almost any other culture, tells and communicates by story. Now, we do this in every single culture. We have our, we have our stories, we have our heroes, we have ways to communicate truth. For my own children, uh, one of my sons would always pretend like he was hurt and he would to get attention when he really wasn't hurt. And so we told him the story about the boy who cried wolf. And it, it's used to teach children, and we used it to teach him, the importance of not calling attention to yourself when it's not an emergency. Because when the time comes when you really need people, they're not going to come. Now, Jesus illustrated the truths of his kingdom, and it's breaking into the world through parables. It's one of the greatest ways of making a point. In verse 3, we see Jesus saying, listen, and here's he lays out the story. A sower, and he's talking about basically a farmer who's going out sowing seed. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. And, and so they didn't have the, the, the modern system that we have in America today. For those that are in other cultures, I've seen this in Nepal, I've seen this in Africa, that you are just sowing the seed. It's still very, that imagery is still very much alive and well. And some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had new, no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, I love it when Jesus does this. This is his way of, pay attention to what I'm saying to you. And he, then he says it, and he goes, by the way, I hope you got what I just said. And he, when he starts off with, listen, it's a present, present imperative active in Greek, which means, listen right now. Pay very close attention to what I'm saying. 
And he who has ears to hear. Again, he says that twice in verse 9 and then 23. And and then pay attention once in verse 24. See, they're all devices used by Jesus in order to get us to pay attention to what he has to say to us. He wants us to really understand. And he begins to talk about the sower and the four soils upon which he casts his seed. Now, before we look into the four soils, we need to make sure that we are proclaiming the reality of God's kingdom. We need to talk about this. We don't talk about this enough. It's just me and Jesus. We don't realize that he is a coming king and that kingdom is breaking through. And in order to be a part of that kingdom, then it requires repentance. And so we need to conceptualize this and understand it because really we just want the facts. We want to get down to the very basics. What's the fire insurance? What's the liability just to get me into heaven? And we we place it in the forgiveness of sins, which it is, but it's so much more than that. And we have to proclaim the reality of God's kingdom. Look throughout the gospels. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God a whole lot more than we ever read the word gospel. Now the seed is going on to the soil. But someone needs to be casting or casting the seed into the soil. That's our job. The word, I mean, the seed, of course, is Jesus or who Jesus is. The teaching of the kingdom, the teaching of who Christ is. But our job is to proclaim that. It's our job. Kevin Van Hooser, he's one of my favorite professors. He's a brilliant guy. He wrote a book called Drama of Doctrine, and he he talks about us performing the gospel. And, And I'm a big believer in this. We don't just act it. We don't just memorize it. We don't just force things about it where it's not God forcing himself on us. It's a performance script. And and really the church is a company of players gathered together to stage scenes of the kingdom of God. I'm not talking about what we see in the scripture like, like here, oh, this is another parable. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about we are showing the reality that we are participants in God's kingdom by living our lives in such a way that the world sees us and sees Christ in us. Did you get that? Because that's what we're doing. We're gathered together to stage scenes of the kingdom of God to the the watching world. And the direction of doctrine, which is right teaching, or this teaching, it enables us as individuals and as a church to render the gospel, the good news public, by leading lives in creative imitation of Christ. That's what it means. We, we are showing and mimicking, in essence, what we see our king doing so the world can see Christ in us. So as Christians, we are to be telling others about Jesus by living out the gospel and, and telling other people about him. So we, in other words, what I mean by that is we are, we are doing it with our lives and we're also talking about it with our mouths. And what are we saying? That he's a king who has come to his creation to fulfill Israel's task to be a light to the nations, to bring salvation to all who will receive the sacrifice he gave by the sacrifice of himself, who went to the cross in our place, who died our death, was buried, and then rose again on the third day. He was seen by his followers up to 500 at one time over a 40-day period, and then in full view of them, ascended into heaven where he sits at the Father's right hand, awaiting the day when the Father will place everything under his feet. This isn't an optional thing here, but it's a command. In fact, we read this in Acts chapter 17, verse 30 through 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked. The times where people were, could say, I don't know. He, he overlooked them. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Repentance is not optional in God's economy. It's actually, as Lewis said, a description of what going back to God looks like. 
You want to know how to get to God, it involves repentance, and it means turning away. That's a description of what it means to go to God. But the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he is fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That is a knock your socks off passage. That, that's, that's in your face. That is not tolerant. That is command. That is demand. Now, for some people, we don't like that. We want to have our our options open. We don't like commitment, especially in the United States right now. We are commitment phobes. And we don't like anyone telling us what to do. We are all about our liberty and our individualism and making our own choices. And and I get it. And that's part of America. But here he's saying, I am commanding all people to repent because he's getting ready to judge the world, not according to any other external criteria of the world or what Congress says or what different individuals say or what society might say or even what the world might say, but according to what God might say. And that should cause us to pay attention and take notice. And that means that if, if he's coming and he is going to have his kingdom break through, then our job is to tell others about Jesus. Now, we're great at sharing YouTube videos. We're great at showing or having people look at YouTube and say, here, check this out or see this movie or you got to see this on Netflix or Hulu or you got to check this out or we're, we're good at sharing all that stuff. But when it comes to Jesus, we are oddly silent. And not just share, by the way, as our postmodern world says, but proclaim it with authority, surety, and love. And realizing there are going to be various responses to our message. Not everybody is going to embrace Jesus. Now, there is this this spectrum where we can think, okay, no one's going to respond, and then we think everybody's going to respond, right? It's one of those two extremes. And the reality is, is that people are going to take a variety of different responses to our message. Our job is simply to proclaim it. We can't make a person respond. And we don't just throw it at their feet and say, here, take it and do with it what you will. I'm just to to throw it out. Well, you do so in love and surety and giving a reason for the hope that you have in Christ. And and the reason I even bring that up is because I've encountered some Christians that just like, I just throw it out there and then they, they take it or they don't take it, but they don't give any reason to culture or process or conversation. And, and we see that there was process. God is in process with us then we need to recognize that he's in process with others too, and that not, they're not just products, but they are people that are dearly loved by God. And there are going to be various responses to our message. And we can't make a person respond, but we can be guaranteed that there will be, inevitably, some type of response, which Jesus talked about. And some of the responses may involve, I mean, here we see the first response is Satan stealing the word from their heart. Now, Satan is a very real spirit being. I do believe in a literal devil, straight up. He is a fallen angel. He's limited. He is, has, he is uh, as Martin Luther said, even the devil is God's devil. He can't do anything beyond what God will allow him to do. So in that regard, he is limited. He is not God. He is not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. He's not all-powerful. He does not have the perfections of God. 
but he is at war with God, and he wants to steal the word from those who could be participants or recipients of God's salvation. And remember, Satan is a liar. That's his native tongue. I don't know if you've ever been around a liar in your life. I had a guy that I went to high school with. He became known as the liar. And whatever he said, whatever promises he made, you just knew it wasn't going to happen. And so it's the same with the devil. He whispers to us. He tries to speak to us. He, he, he tries us to get us to embrace the liar. And he is considered the ruler of this world. And he dis- disguises himself as an angel of light who schemes against God's people and is a constantly accusing God's people before God's throne. He straight up just tries to steal, or he actually straight up steals the word from people's heart. And we must know that we will experience straight up rejection at times. That's kind of what it's referring to there. People are just going to go, nope, done. And we must be ready for it and be okay with it. And that's really hard because it is such a part of who we are. It's not that we're selling a product. It's far deeper than that. Like if we're just to sell a product and they reject it, okay, no big deal. But when it's the essence of who we are and that's rejected, that can be extremely painful for us. And we don't like rejection. We fear rejection all the time. But yet, we know that we're going to experience it, as did Jesus. And we still are to continue to be loving, as Peter said in 1 Peter 3, 15 through 17. And if anybody needed to um, remind people to be loving and understood what it meant to be loving, it was Peter. And in 1 Peter 3, 15 through 17, we read this, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." There will also be varying degrees of responses that are not so easy to nail down as straight-up rejection. Consider the second response of the seed on the rocky ground. They are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in, in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Now, here's how it works. If we could put it into a little formula, this is what it looked like. There is initial reception minus discipleship or root plus tribulation slash persecution equals rejection. Somebody say that again. Initial reception without minus discipleship or root which means teaching, foundation, plus tribulation or persecution equals rejection. I see this all the time. For whatever reason, bad preaching or bad theology says, pray this prayer and you're in. And they make it just like you just signed the dotted line without helping people understand what that really means for them. You see this oftentimes in crusades. And I'm not talking about Billy Graham crusades. I have a dear, dear friend who has these evangelistic crusades in other countries, and he puts all these photos up, and he says, look at all the responses. And people will respond if you promise good health, if you promise wealth, if you promise any type of better life. The question is, is are, are they really truly believers and understand who Jesus is that they are following? And without helping people understand what that really means for them, 
It's about Jesus Christ being birthed in you once you receive him as Savior and having him grow up in you. It's not a fire insurance or life insurance policy. It's a born-again birth certificate. We all know of people that do this. They start off great, uber excited, but then difficulty comes at school, home, work, or with friends. They have a setback. They don't feel God answers a prayer. They, God doesn't provide for them in the way that they think that he should be providing for them. Small sins start creeping back in. Old friends start tearing us away from our newfound life. And it's because there hasn't been someone to disciple them, to come alongside them, to show them, to encourage them, to instruct them. To, to help them understand what it means to walk with Jesus. It's like this picture of Samwise Gamgee and Frodo Baggins at the end of The Lord of the Rings. Frodo can't go on, but there is Samwise, his trusted companion, picking him up and carrying him to Mount Doom to help him dispose of the ring. He couldn't carry it himself, but he knew, Sam, he, he knew Frodo did, so he was helping carry him to do it. Samwise helped him in his journey. And we must help one another in ours as well. We must teach and live the reality of the word and do so in the best way possible, admitting when we fail and helping one another walk with Jesus. That's discipleship, where you become more like Jesus day in and day out. It's not memorizing a ton of words or going on a lot of mission trips or doing great things, although those may happen. But it's in the daily grind of life where we become more and more like Jesus in our daily, everyday decisions and relationships. Another reaction we see is in verse 18. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Here it is, initial reception plus responsibilities, plus riches, equals rejection. Let me say that again. Initial reception, plus responsibilities, plus riches, equals rejection. Again, we all know someone who fits in this category. This is the one who has initial reception, but the responsibilities of this life, riches, equals rejection. You can see this in the lives of individuals in America, such as people like Britney Spears, Katy Perry, the Jonas Brothers, Christian Chenoweth. They grew up in Christian homes, but the world crept in and corrupted them. They didn't have great teaching. They didn't have a great root. They were encountering questions and riches was com were coming in and people that didn't seem to fit the categories that they'd been taught or seemed to really violate them. And yet they still continued on and seemed to be pretty blessed. And, and you see, these are individuals that were immensely talented musicians, but they began to be surrounded by an entourage that was not sympathetic to their faith. They were tempted either to compromise the biblical message to make it fit their contemporary beliefs about the world and what sin is, while keeping the loving part or rejected entirely. Now let me say this, any type of compromise with the scripture about what sin is, is a rejection of the gospel. The moment that we make scripture to go in line with what we want to be true, rather than what is true, we have lost the gospel. God is the one who defines sin, not us. Now, Tim Dickow, who was ministering in eastern Vancouver, Canada, discovered six 
idolatries that were preventing the kingdom going forth and people becoming who God desires them to be. Now, I say idolatries. Let me clear this up for those who in other countries are listening to this because an idol is more than a statue. I love how one guy put it, they are good things that become God things and then they become bad things. And these are things in our world that prevent us from really seeing who God is and they become functional gods in our lives. So anything that takes the place of who, the position that God should occupy is an idol. And, and Tim Dickow noticed six idolatries that were preventing the kingdom going forth and people becoming who does God desires them to be. Ready? Here we go. Entertainment. Entertainment. Everybody going back and forth and just streaming all the time and going to pursue it. And the, and the entertainment can be in a, a variety of different ways. It can be sports, by the way, with our kids. I'm seeing a lot of people in churches that have made their children's sports schedules an idol greater than God. And they think to themselves, oh, I don't want to deny my son and daughter. That's what it's required. My question is, what are you denying them? What are they pursuing? You want to help them get something good? Great. Do you want to help them get something good and really, really good? The gospel. Help them grasp it. Oh, it's not one big deal. It's not that big a deal. Um, it, it really doesn't matter. It's just a couple of Sundays here and there. And my son or daughter really knows. You know what they know? is You're showing them by your example that... Sports is bigger than God and their desires and their wants and what society says is bigger and better than God. Yeah, that's what you're saying. God is not that important. And that is a form of idolatry. It's, it's an aspect of it. There's internet surfing, workaholism, accumulation of private wealth, individualism slash autonomy, and family. Even family can become an idolatry in our world today. And I, and I often see this because you see the pendulum swing back and forth um, over generations. And one generation, they didn't pay attention to their family. And the next generation wants to pay all attention to their family. And those are usually in real affluent areas, okay? Now, that can happen anywhere. But I'm seeing this mostly in the Western America where family can itself become a form of idolatry. And again, internet surfing, that's taking away. We're just constantly scrolling, going through different things and putting these images in front of ourselves rather than seeking God. And these idolatries are not so much focused on blocking personal spirituality, though that would be true as well, but instead they impede local church fellowship and mutual living. Let me, let me straight say this really clear. You can't have Jesus without the church. It doesn't work that way. They are... A, a couple, they're a unit, that the, the church is Jesus's bride. You can't have me without my wife. You can say, oh, I want you to come and not my wife. It doesn't play that way. But it's really a misnomer. When you say, I'm a, a, a Christian without a church, you're like saying, I am like water with a, and don't have wet. It, it doesn't go. It, it, it's impossible the two go together. And I'm so tired of people saying, I am spiritual but not rel religious. That's a bunch of garbage. That's like saying, I want to be looked as a good person, but I don't want to follow the other group of people. See, God establishes a group of people for us to do and work out our salvation with, and it's imperfect, and it's rough, and it's hard, and it's messy, but that's what God has done. And we are in coming together and trying to work through these things 
trying to show the reality of who God is, that he is greater than our preferences and our personalities and all the people that look and sound like us, and we're going to work this thing out because we're committed to it. And so we need to understand that. So we have to get rid of our idols and adopt a greater kingdom mindset. It's not about me. Now, the best reaction is found in actually verse 20. But those that were sown in the ground, good soil, are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Now, for those, this is for those who receive the word, grow in, in faith, and bore fruit, which is reward. And here's how it would look in a formula. Reception plus discipleship equals reward. Reception plus discipleship equals reward. Those who accept the, the message of Christ will bear fruit. Now, it might look different because of the gifts that you've been given, but when you know Jesus, you take root, you bear fruit. Now, the question is, have you taken root? And are you bearing fruit? In John chapter 15, verse 1 through 11, Jesus said that we're to abide in him in order that we might bear fruit. He said this, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you. Unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away, like a branch, and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now, the litmus test is bearing fruit. How are we doing that? God wants us to take root, which means being discipled, becoming, learning what it means to become more like Jesus, learning how to pray, learning how to share our faith, learning how to, to live with our spouses, how to love our children, how to engage our finances, how to forgive those around us, how to um, release envy, how to surrender, how to get rid of certain sins from our lives, uh, how do we get along with difficult people. These are all things that we learn as we're being discipled to be more like Jesus. And that, that, first of all, means being in church. It might mean being in a small group or growing in grace or serving, learning what it means to tell others about who Jesus is. And we must be recognizing our responsibility in God's work. See, look at verse 27. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the, seeds sprouts, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. So it, this is, involves a steadfast work. It requires time. He gets up at all times of the day and night to sow the seed. It's work. I think of the Apostle Paul and what he did in order to make the gospel known. 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 29. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches, who is weak and I am not weak, who is made to fall and I'm not indignant. Now, hear me lay this out. Paul's saying right here, I've gone through a bunch of garbage. I've been whipped. I was beaten with rods. Once they tried to throw stones at me till I died. Three times I've been shipwrecked. A night and day I was drifted at sea. I've been on a lot of different journeys. I'm in danger on the river because people are trying to kill me. I'm in danger from robbers. I'm in danger from my own people, the Jews, because they rejected Jesus and they want to take me out. I'm in danger from Gentiles. Those are outside of God's kingdom. They don't like me either because I'm calling them away from their false gods and goddesses to embrace the true God. I'm in danger in the city. I'm in danger out in the country, in the wilderness. I'm in danger even when I'm out sea and there's no one else around. I'm in danger from false brothers, people trying to get close and take me out in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night. I can't sleep. I got so much stuff going on in my brain. I'm I'm a little bit paranoid right now. In hunger, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I'm, I'm without food. It's cold. I don't have any blankets, exposure. And apart from other things, there's this daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I'm getting reports from all these different churches in Corinth for crying out loud. The guys are getting drunk at communion. A guy's sleeping with his stepmother and they keep abusing the spiritual gifts. And and there are all these factions on different people that they're following. And then I get a report from Philippi where these women are at each other's throats and they can't disagree. And then I hear what's going on in Thessalonica where people are quitting their jobs because they think Jesus is coming back right away. In Galatia, I'm getting all these reports about people trying to do what the Jewish law says even though they've been freed from it. I am worn out. I keep getting reports from these fledgling churches and I got my own stuff I got to deal with. Who's weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant? See, that's the question. What are we willing to undergo? The gospel is not safe for the whole family. It is not a sanctified veggies episode, veggie tales episode. The question is, what are we willing to endure? What sacrifices are we willing to make? What services are we willing to step into? We are a body, and God is calling us to follow him. He's not calling us to follow him in American self-help, save my daily life through management techniques, all the time practical Christianity. No, he is calling us to live for him, to order our life under his supremacy, to live as citizens of his kingdom. He's calling us to dangerously tell others who Jesus is. It may mean suffering. It definitely means misunderstanding and persecution. It is hard work, but it's also a secret work. Look at verse 27. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, but he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear, but when the grain is ripe, and once he puts it in the sickle, because the harvest has come. See, it's a work that people don't always see happening. This is where in America we get really jacked up. We want immediate results. Immediate results. We want to see it. We want to see the change. We want to see it all, I mean, really quick. Now, sometimes it happens. I always say with salvation, for some people, it was the light switch was off and then it was on. I mean, it is instantaneous. But for other people, it's like a dimmer switch. It's slow. And the light starts to just begin to... Breakthrough. 
and gets brighter and brighter. And that process is often a mundane process. No one sees the late nights, the stuff that goes on behind the scenes. No one sees the tears, the misunderstandings, the feelings of anxiety, of inadequacy, of shame, of failing, of dealing with our own sin, our own struggles, the conflict of those around us, the feelings of being slighted and misunderstood. Which is why Jesus told us to get away with him, to close the door where our Father, who sees in secret, will reward us. It's hard to do his secret work, though. We have to have an increased faith that God sees even when there is no applause, no adulation. You know, there's a story about a warehouse that had very slow production. The managers had a theory that there was not enough light for them to see what they were doing. So they put in new lighting and production increased. But as time went on, production went down again. They once again put their heads together and thought that they had now too much light. So they dimmed it a bit and production once again went up. And then it went back down. It turns out that it wasn't about the light at all. It was about the fact that management was paying attention to them. You see, we have to remember that it is not men that we are paying attention that are paying attention to us, but God. And he does see. And we have to preach that to ourselves time and time again. It's not about what you put out on Twitter or on Instagram or Facebook or how many likes you have or how popular you are or how great you are with words. I mean, it's serving behind the scenes oftentimes, doing the day-to-day, because that's where faith comes in, and we have to read the Word and allow God to speak to us through it, and then we discover that we will reap a harvest if we do not give up because God is doing something under the surface that we can't always see or understand. Now let's look at verse 28 here for a minute. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts, it, puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. God will make it grow. It will be a successful work. Your work will be a successful work. One more time. Your work will be a successful work. It reminds me of the promise we have in Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall exceed in the thing for which I sent it. God is going to make our efforts grow. Like the sower, the growth may be slow and even imperceptible to the eye, but there's going to be growth. God has guaranteed it. As the British pastor Charles Haddon Spurgeon put it in one of his addresses to pastors, so pray and preach that if there are no conversions, you will be astonished, amazed, and brokenhearted. Look for the salvation of your hearers as much as the angel who will sound the last trump will work for the waking of the dead. Believe your own doctrine. Believe your own Savior. 
Believe in the Holy Ghost who dwells in you, for thus shall you see your heart's desire, and God shall be glorified. I love Spurgeon. God's word is so powerful in what it can do. It will transform lives. It's amazing how God uses the word to transform lives. That's why it's the most banned book in the world. It's the most read book in the world. It's the most studied book in the world. It's the most scrutinized book in the world. The most stolen book in the world. This book that we have is the most controversial book in the world because it changes lives. Our job is to not make people respond. God will do that. Our job is to cast the seed about the kingdom. That's all. The world has come a long way in modern agriculture and planting techniques. Today, farmers can, with pinpoint accuracy, measure the depth of the seed, how far apart it is from other seeds, along with a whole host of other things. But in the first century, it was just reaching into a pouch and casting them over the ground. The ground there is rich in nutrients, and it's green all around the Sea of Galilee, and lust for farming gets gorgeous. It was a common sight to see a sower going forth to sow. So we need to remember that it is a a successful work, but it's also going to be a shining work. Look at verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Lamps were common. It was a small lamp with a wick and it had oil in it. It was not to be put under a basket or under a bed, but it was to be put on a stand. See, Christ's rule and presence is like bringing an oil lamp into a room. You can see that in Matthew 5.15 or Luke 8.16. God's rule makes hidden things like a hard heart or hidden sin apparent. God's word brings all of that to life. I remember going into the kitchen and grabbing a piece of bread from the bag, made some toast and went on my merry way. It was dark, but I knew my way around enough that I didn't need it. I came back later to make another piece and turn the light on to do something else. Walked to the bag that contained the loaf, reached in, pulled out a piece of bread, and saw that it had actually had mold on it. See, the light revealed what the darkness had hidden. Now, fortunately, I was okay, but had we eaten the moldy toast, we could have gotten pretty sick. See, the gospel reveals a hard heart and hidden sin. God's word will accomplish everything for which it is purposed, for the positive response of salvation or for hardening of one heart for judgment. Now look at verse 24. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. See, it's also going to be a, a snowball or a subtracting work. A snowball or a subtraction work. See, if we're faithful to do what God has for us, he will bless and give us more. Or if we fail to be faithful with it, then he'll take it away. It is either a snowball or a subtraction, one growing and one decreasing. And lastly, as we talk about the kingdom of God and we see how people respond to it, we see that it is a surprising work. Look at verse 26. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. 
The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it in the sickle because the harvest has come. You see, God is the one who makes it grow. That's why he says he knows not how. See, there are people that we think are going to respond to the gospel and they never do. And there are others who we think will never respond to the gospel, that they are so caught in their sin and they are just blazingly showing or uh, demonstrating or proclaiming their sin and their love of it and their pride, and yet God transforms their heart. You see, it's a surprising work because it's God at work. It's the Spirit of God touching the hearts of people and transforming them. So here's what I want to encourage you with. There are people that are in your life that you think are far from God. Don't quit. They're on their way. God is working, and it's going to, there's going to be a transformation. There's going to be something to occur. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. Or as Winston Churchill said, never give up. Never give up. Never, ever, 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 ever give up. We have to hold on until the end, till Jesus comes. We continue to proclaim that truth. Even when we don't see the response, we know that there will be a response, that God sees what's going on, that it, though it's secret, though it's hard, that there's going to be a response. People will come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. They might be apathetic. They might have their hearts hard. There might be that family member in your life. It could be a son. It could be a daughter. It could be a spouse or a, or a cousin or a niece or nephew or parent or grandparent. It could be a dear, trusted friend or a co-worker or classmate. I don't know who it is that you have been witnessing to and talking to about Jesus, but don't give up. Don't give up. God is going to bring about a harvest that you cannot begin to understand, that there is something happening beneath the surface that you don't realize. I hope to share another story with you in, in weeks to come about how God has transformed the hearts and minds of people to the, by those who have been faithful, even though they didn't see it. Even though they didn't see it. So that's what the kingdom, or that's what God's kingdom breaking through our lives looks like. It's a, it's a work. It's a difficult work, but, and it's happening in secret, but it's working. Winter is passing. Christmas is coming. Metaphorically speaking, especially in the book that Lewis talked about, it's breaking through. The snow is starting to melt as we continue to live our lives the way that God has us to live. But see, what the devil does is he keeps us distracted. As John Maxwell says, distraction is the killer to direction. So let's not be distracted, but continue on in the direction that God has for us. God's kingdom is breaking through in our lives, and it will begin to bear fruit if it's not already. Is the kingdom breaking through you? What's keeping it back? Remove it and watch what God will do in and through you. Well, that's it for today, everybody. I want to thank you for tuning in to Apollos Watered, where you can get your faith saturated with the things of God. I hope that you are growing in your relationship with Jesus. Please go online, give us a like, ask us a question, send us a message, throw us a thumbs up, whatever you need to do, just communicate with us because we want to be able to help you grow in your faith with Jesus Christ. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off with Apollo's Water. Stay watered, everybody.